All right, we're live. People are starting to people are starting to file in. And uh, Clint, you were in the middle of giving a weather report on Texas, so it's yeah. a, little bit, a little cold snap, but it's starting to get nice. Yeah, I mean, our definitions of cold snap are are quite different than yours. Uh, so for us, it's into the fifties right now, and for you, that's a warm, balmy day. But yeah, it's it's well, beautiful weather here in the central Texas. Our, our kids have been swimming in the swimming pool this week already. I, we were in Florida last week, and to us, it was really warm and hot. And I, I pointed out one evening a person walking with a jacket on. I said, look, there's a person with a jacket. And my kids were like, that's crazy. And I said, that's a local. That's someone who feels cold right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're, we got people piling in. Let's start the show. We're going to run the intro. We'll be back in a moment. Okay. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Awesome. Welcome, Clint. Welcome to the viewers who are piling in. Uh, today, we've got Clint Fiore, business broker uh, located in Texas. Um, Clint, for people who, who may not know you, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background on who you are and, uh, and, and what you do right now to help business owners? Sure. So I am a, a serial entrepreneur turned M&A deal maker, business broker, um, started and sold a couple companies as an entrepreneur got tired of the startup game and uh, all the the drama and the roller coaster rides of starting businesses. Even though I was good at it and I liked it, I wanted my own business um, that could be just kind of a a long term cash cow type of business. And I, I went on a search, uh, kind of like many of the listeners of, of that want to buy a business. I was looking for one I could buy. This was a <coughs> excuse me. This was around 2014. And uh, was very frustrated by how difficult it was to find and buy companies. And that's mm -hmm. when the light bulb came on. Of, I bet there's a lot of people like me that are struggling to find good stuff and get deals done. And I wasn't really impressed with most of the uh, business brokers I met along the way. And I just figured um, if I'm having this much trouble, I bet a bunch of other people are too. And maybe we could do this better. So I started my last startup, hopefully, <laughs> it was... Uh, my business brokerage in, in 2015, we launched and uh, we're called Bison Business. And yeah, that's exactly what we do. We help people buy and sell companies and we also do uh, valuation work, but we're mainly a transaction advisory firm in the lower middle market to what I would call premium main street space. Most of our deals are, uh, you know, one to 10 million enterprise value is kind of our sweet spot. And um and so, yeah, we, we, we work there and we've been doing that for eight years. And I basically just built the company that I wish existed when I was a buyer um, out searching for business to buy. And, and would you say that most of the businesses that come to you for help to sell are owner operated? Yeah, most of them are. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so um, we, I wanted to have you on here today because I, uh, you know, there's been a lot, of course, in the news about interest rates that have gone up over the course of the last year. I had Lisa Forrest on a couple of weeks ago, uh, who was talking about, you know, sort of the effects on 
you know, the finance costs of doing an acquisition, et cetera. And I thought it would be great to have you come on and talk and just to, to share with us if you're seeing or what changes you are seeing in the landscape of the deal making now that finance costs have increased so much. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. It's been a uh, interesting time uh, to be a deal maker, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, the main thing I wanted to say is that there's still, I think, a supply and demand imbalance when it comes to if you have a good business to sell, there's more buyers than there, than we need right now. You know, and so good businesses are in demand and that means values haven't dropped uh, precipitously with the interest rates increasing. And so values uh, maybe in the middle market with the largest deals have come down a bit, but in the premium main street space where multiples are typically in the, in the two to four X range, they've kind of just been hanging out steady. And I think that's just because there's still lots of buyers that are looking for good deals. Uh, I do think that there's been the lowest part of the market, the very smallest deals that have the um, smallest buyers trying to buy them. I think those have suffered a little bit as well um, just because they don't have the ability to put down a larger down payment. They don't have very many levers that they can pull and they mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're typically trying to max leverage and uh, make a living. And when it's a small deal and you've got to back out your, your pay and the debt service, you, you're limited in a high interest rate environment for how much you can pay for that company. And so I think in the very smallest deals where you don't have a bunch of buyers and that those have taken a bit of a value hit, but the, the realm where I play and, and our firm does deals is still been pretty steady. I, I've done some videos where I've covered the, the IBBA market survey reports that come out every quarter sure. and it shows, you know, average multiples for the different categories and what, was interesting is when interest rates were very low, you know, in the period after the pandemic and everything, um, is those sort of lower middle market businesses, the multiples actually started to creep up where Main Street kind of stayed in that two, two and a half ish. And so what you're seeing is that on the way with the the story reversing, it's it's kind of just the mid market ones are being affected in the opposite way, but those Main Street ones are still kind of staying in the same ballpark. Yeah, I think I think it's just a return to historical norm more than anything else. Yeah. And I think that we've been a bit uh, on the bubbly side in 20, 2020, 2021. It's great that you bring that up because I was listening to an interview that I did with a banker in 2019 the other day. And the banker was talking about how they have such great rates available. And they were talking about prime being 5% and then the SBA fees bringing it up to about eight and a half. And I was just like, wow, you know, that's not that different than what we're seeing right now. And that was considered a great rate just a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so tell me, Clint, for, for the businesses that you list for sale, what would be the average length of time that you would have the listing available? So our average is about nine months from listing to closing. Uh, the longest one I've ever done was probably two and a half years. So sometimes it can... Mm-hmm be a really slow process or you might have to switch buyers a few times and banks a few times and, and uh, hang in there and get it done. The fastest one I've ever done is about uh, probably 60 to 90 days start to finish. So that was a uh, lightning fast in our world. But typically I would say, you know, it takes about a month to get a business ready to sell or packaged up. And then, uh, you know, a couple months of, of entertaining, you know, 
entertaining buyers, doing showings and meetings and uh, kind of figuring out who's going to be the best uh, fit for this and then taking offers from them, negotiating those, you know, so that usually is a couple months. And then once you get an LOI signed, we typically go LOI first and then purchase agreement prior to close. Um, that's usually another 60 to 90 days to get through due diligence and third-party financing approval and uh, legal and all those steps. So you stack all that up and it, it, this isn't a, a deal that happens instantly. Yeah. Well, the reason why I'm asking is I'm just wondering if you've had any business owners that you've been working with kind of straddling this period of, of mm -hmm. interest rate change and, and, and how have you had to work with them or, or what those conversations have been like, you know, to say to them, like, maybe we need to change our expectations about what we can expect here. Yeah, I would say the uh, I think a lot of buyers, the misconception is, is that it's going to be reflected in the purchase price. Um, they're going to they're going to say this is a teeter totter. If interest rates go up, price needs to come down. And I think a lot of that misconception kind of might might flow from commercial real estate or these deals where it, that are extremely um, interest rate sensitive. And I don't think our deals are as interest rate sensitive. And I think that. Um, if anything, the levers that are pulled on ours aren't, aren't really the purchase price lever. It's more the seller financing and down payment and deal structuring lev levers. And so that's something we can talk about together today is kind of if you've got that um, value gap where maybe the seller um, and, and I don't and I, my heart kind of goes out to some of these sellers because a common scenario I see is um you get a buyer saying we need to lower what we'll pay because interest rates are rising. But from the seller's world, they don't have an SBA loan. They don't have debt and their balance sheet is strong. Their PL is strong. They're putting up growth and their best years ever on, on their numbers. So it's like, why should I be punished for, you know, it sounds like you just don't have the money to buy this or, you know, interest rates are your problem and not my problem. And, and, uh, and in a way they're right, you know, because their, their business is as strong as ever and they're making great money. And why should I take a haircut for, for that? Um, especially when there's lots of buyers that want the same business. And so from the buyer side, uh, you have to respect that a little bit, but also realize that your math gets worse when interest rates go up. And so uh, the, the way we've been handling this is typically doing a little bit more down payment a little bit more seller financing. Sometimes we'll, uh, seller financing is, is a great kind of Swiss army knife that can solve a lot of problems. And you know, mm -hmm. that's a deal maker, but sometimes it will, we'll do a more generous uh, amortization than normal on a seller financing, where in the past we used to do three, five or seven year amortizing seller finance notes. So now we might do a 10 year with a three year balloon or, um, maybe a 10 year with a, a one year delay before the first payment, you know, kind of thing to give them a little bit of room, uh, breathing room on, on building up some cash on the front end. And so um, if you just remember when you're trying to do a deal, you know, the, the seller is typically tunnel vision focused on the big number on the purchase price. And you as the buyer are probably rightfully focused on cash flow post transaction as your most yep. important number. And so if you can just keep in mind of what does this side want and what does that side want and, and work together to get 
both sides what they want in the current interest rate environments. So that's where a good deal uh, is going to come together. I, I've, I've um, spoken before about what I, I call the, the buyer empathy problem. A lot of sellers will get focused on the big number, as you said, and they'll start to daydream about this point in time where they're going to have all these millions of dollars or whatnot. But, but many of them don't stop to consider what it would be like to buy their business at their asking price. Is that an exercise that you would go through with a lot of your sellers to show them what it looks like from the buyer's perspective? We do. Yeah. So we, when we're first taking on an engagement, um, we do a couple steps to kind of help. And, and this is on a side note, our firm has a very high sell through rate. Uh, so we, we do get over 90% of the deals that engage with us closed. And, and that's very above industry norm. And part of that is setting good expectations up front. And so mm -hmm. we have to set a good expectation on the valuation is the big one. But we also have to set expectations on deal structure. And so we kind of set expectations that, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, like you're, if you want to get this purchase price, you're going to have to probably carry a little bit of paper on this. Uh, it's probably not going to all be in cash. And we'll run a hypothetical to kind of show their, um, their pre-tax proceeds and their after-tax proceeds um, based on a hypothetical, typical deal structure scenario. But then we'll not only do that, which is, I think, just the basic standard of a good broker should do this with any seller. We're also going to show them from the buyer side. Um, what is this going to look like for a buyer? Because a lot of times there, if you have a, a business owner that's currently enjoying a half million dollars of, of discretionary earnings, they don't realize, A, it's not always a half million of cash flow into their, into their pocket, you know, cause you, you do have CapEx and these other yep. considerations. Um, and, and so this is, you know, we find every, every, uh, bit of discretionary spending and, and, and build that up into the discretionary earnings pile, but then the buyer is going to come in and they're going to have a whole lot of debt. The seller doesn't have, they're going to, uh, want to pay themselves, uh, and so you start backing out the debt service, the salary needs of the buyer, the capex needs of the company, and then you end up with with kind of a, a, a I don't a free cash flow uh, on the other yep. side of that, and then it starts to look. Um, you can start to make the case of Mr. and Mrs. Seller like we can't push this value too hard, or else they're signing up to lose money month one. And would you sign yeah. up? Would you take that deal or not? You know? And so we, we have to demonstrate both sides of that for them to see what a, what a fair deal looks like to both sides. I think that that expectation term is the key one because um, I, I've, I've often said that being a business broker is about selling expectations on both sides. So people are aware of what's going to happen. So many people have never been through the process, right? Both buyers mm -hmm. and sellers. Um, and you know, one of the one of the issues that I run into consistently with with people I've been working with, buyers in particular, is they'll they'll run into a business that's listed for sale, and and because you know ninety percent SBA financing is available, they'll have sellers that are expecting to get you know ninety percent of the sale price on closing day, and and recently there was a tweet put out by a banker who was just commenting, you know, hey everyone, uh, you need to start to get bigger down payments and larger seller notes if you're going to make these deals work with the higher cost of financing. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds like that's a conversation you're having with people up front. Do you find that that creates a challenge for you to secure the listing in certain cases? It can be. Um, we kind of hang our hat on credibility on the valuation and transparency and just walking through every aspect of it. But there are, uh, there are brokers out there that will overpromise and underdeliver, And you know that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to some uh, less reputable uh, players in this space is their game is uh, make big promises to secure the listing and then let them, let the marketplace beat up that seller and then come back and, and drop the price later. And this happens in real estate just the same as it does in business. And uh, to us, that was just um, not, it's not doing the seller any favors to behave in that way. And it's also hurting our reputation with buyers. And we've always been kind of like a buyer oriented firm that we figure if we can get credibility in the, in the eyes of the, the most buyers, where if you see our logo on a deal, you know, it's going to be uh, priced right. If there's an asking price on it, it's going to get through underwriting and appraisals. Um, it's going to cash flow correctly. It's going to have clean books. If we can build that reputation as a firm, then our stuff's going to sell quicker and make our lives a lot easier. And we're here to close deals. And, uh, and so we have to keep that in mind when we try to secure sell side listings of, look, we like you, we want to sell your business, but we've worked hard to create relationships with thousands of active buyers. And we're not going to risk our, our reputation with them for this one deal. Um, it's like you're special, but you ain't that special. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, well, uh, it, it, it's interesting because I find a lot of the conversations, a lot of the, the, the training or teaching or conversations around business brokerage, it's very, it's like one step removed from the real estate world where they like to talk a lot about, you know, the broker's responsibility to the seller and, and, and fiduciary mm-hmm. duty and all this kind of stuff. But if you, if you realize that a business broker's business is basically selling those businesses, if you think about them as pieces of inventory, any retail store is going to survive by having the inventory that customers want to buy mm-hmm. and also by securing that inventory at a wholesale price that allows them to, to clear the market, like to, to be able to offer that, that price to the buyers. So you certainly have to consider you know, what the buyers are going to be willing to do in order for to have any throughput you know, and, and, um, and so I think, I think it's great that you're bringing up these points. You, you had created a couple of slides that you wanted to share with people. You want to walk us through some of those? Yeah. I, I wanted to show you, uh, a very good visual on interest rates. Um, I think this would be helpful. The big thing I want to emphasize here is that, um, these aren't super interest rate sensitive opportunities. So I have a, a deal. This is an actual deal that was on our old website. Um, transmission engineering contractor, 750,000. I just picked a, a small deal, $750,000 asking price with 240,000 of discretionary earnings. So just a little bit mm-hmm. over a three X. And then I've got this tool here that is a future earnings calculator. Can you, can you see this? Okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe zoom in one more step if you can. Okay. There we go. 
So I've got a few variables we can play with, but I just had it auto-populated with a 10% down payment. And I wanted to show you what this looks like. When, when you see this black area, this represents the loan. So this, re this would represent an SBA loan at 90% financing. And the golden area is earnings to you, the buyer. The black area is debt service to service this debt. Uh, to service the, loan. service the loan. And so what I want you to see wow. is that uh, I'm going to set the length of the amortization to 10 years and you see that stretch out. Uh, so 10 years at 9% interest looks like this. As the interest rate goes up to 10%, you see that get taller, that black box. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we just went from nine where we started. I'm going to bump it up to 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. 15, 16, and you see how it doesn't, it, it still has room on, on above it. So I'm going to back it down to like a 10%, which is kind of um, what I'm seeing some stuff at today. And then I can hover over my calculator here. And mm -hmm. this just shows after, after a year, you know, if, if we didn't grow at all, you've got a $106,000 loan payment against 240,000 in discretionary earnings and you've got 134,000 left available after your down payment. Okay. And so remember that, okay, this was a $106,000 loan payment, 134 to you after you serve it to debt. So I'm going to bump it up a couple points. And now the loan payment's 115 and you still are making 125 after debt service. And that was a, a two full percentage increase. And so these aren't extremely interest rate sensitive. Yeah, it was really sexy when it was 6%, but it's still sexy at 12. And then what I also wanted to show you is this is assuming zero growth. If you start playing with this far right toggle, this is where it gets really fun. So if we just want to keep up with inflation and we think it's going to be 5% for a while, let's bump up. So watch the, uh, when you when you have debt, say at a, at a 10-year rate, it stays the same, and your growth starts bumping up. So this is what 5% growth looks like. Mm. And now your, your gap between this debt service and your earnings gets bigger and bigger if you're growing the company. And this is the beauty of these transactions is like this one that started at just this lowly 240000 earnings at a 12% interest rate loan. Once you get that paid off, even at a 5% growth rate by, you know, 10 years from now, once your loan's paid off, you're now earning closer to 400,000 in discretionary earnings. You have no more loan payment. So that's going to your benefit as a buyer. And along the way, you've already accumulated $2.27 million in earnings. And your company has probably doubled in value at that point as well. And so this is a phenomenal mm -hmm. investment. And this, this all started with just a $75,000 down payment to get you to several million of earnings over time and a company that's probably worth a million and a half and is debt free right now. Um, yeah. And so it's, I, I think this is a really cool looking tool. Some of, some of the other people actually are, are commenting the same thing. They're saying that's a nice calculator um, and a cool scenario. I want one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, you know, and, and obviously there's a lot of assumptions that are built into this, this calculator yeah. that how things are going to work and everything like that. One, 
when I see that initial demonstration there, 200, was it 240 some thousand in SDE yeah. and then a 106,000 in loan payments. Um, one of, one of the things that I would look at immediately is say, wow, you know, if, if the person's time to run this business was worth a hundred grand, mm -hmm. it wouldn't leave a whole lot left for, you know, CapEx and taxes and all those other things. But, but this is all based on the asking price. And I guess there's a certain assumption that the asking price is going to be negotiated to some degree yeah. by any buyer that comes along. So I have a, uh, I have a second earnings calculator being developed right now by my uh, development team. And we're going to build a new one that has the ability to change the asking price and the ability to add a seller note to this as well. So you mm -hmm. can kind of see the two loans stacked on each other and what that would look like. And that's going to be, cool. that's going to be the, the 2.0 version of this. I'm really excited about that'll go on bisonbusiness.com. Uh, the other little Easter egg in this I wanted to show you, which is really neat for just stress testing your deals is, yeah, it's great to look at the, the pretty up and to the right uh, when you, when you grow. Right. But what if, what if we're in for a rocky future, David? And what if, what if things go down? Um, the big thing I wanted to uh, show is like how, if you did a 10% down deal at a 10% interest rate at a 10 year amortization today, which is what this is set up as right now, how much could you go down in revenue before you uh, couldn't service the debt? That's, that's a question. So the annual growth rate, this is a, this is a CAGR, a compound annual growth rate. So if you go down and down and down, you're now losing 5% a year. That sucks, but the company can still pay for itself as long as there's yellow above this black bar. Does that make sense? Well, so, so when you are, you're reducing the sales. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm reducing the earnings. So if your earnings are going down 5% per year. Okay. So that's okay. So that's, that's the SDE going down. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if your if your earnings are going down five percent a year, six percent a year, seven percent a year, like how how much can you screw this up before you can't make your loan payment? And so typically, I see right around ten percent. So yeah, nine percent in this scenario. Can you see the skull and crossbones pop up? Uh, <laughs> That's my little. So, so, but, so the skull and crossbones mean, means you died uh, on the Oregon Trail, but but that's still not that bad because you 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 missed one payment at the very end from the company, but all this yellow is still profit. And then after that, it's still profit. Well, but I mean, to be fair, the, the, in this scenario, yeah, you can still make the payment, but the person wouldn't be taking home a salary for working full time in their business. Right. So this is, this goes to deal size. Yeah. This one that I'm showing you is probably, if you're going to be, working full-time in the business and need to take a salary from it. Like this is about as small as I would go. And so I wanted to, to introduce this as kind of just a small deal. That's the most accessible. Most of the deals we do and I recommend people do are like four or 500,000 in SDE or higher. And that just gives you much more breathing room to be able to pay yourself and service the debt and still have some, some operating cushion there. And so that's another conversation, but uh, I'm a big fan of the half a million to million earnings deal size because I feel like 
that gives you enough room to make a good living, service the debt, still have money left over for reinvestment and growth. And you're still a little bit under the radar of private equity and the institutional buyers that are going to um, drive up, bid up the deal and make it harder for you to land the deal. Um, and so I like buying in that range and then selling and then growing it to above a million EBITDA and uh, selling to private equity when it's time to exit. I think that's, I call that the level up strategy. That's one of my favorite strategies. Yeah. Uh, we've got a bunch of people in the in the audience here who've made some comments. I'm going to go through some of them. First of all, we've got uh, Kevin, who's in uh, in Lakeland, Florida, says, hey, hi, Kevin. How are you today? Good to see you. Um, here's a big question. Uh, what trend do you see from lenders, if any yet, about the from this whole SVB issue? I mean, how, do you think this is going to affect SBA loans or small business deals? That's a great question. I hope not. I, I currently have five um, under contract that are using third-party loans. And I was kind of bracing this week to see if I got any calls on, hey, we're, we're putting the brakes on this. But so far, everybody's still on track to close. We haven't seen anybody, any bank walk away um, from pending deals on us. But that's a, that's a real concern um, is, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the SBA lenders we work with are not, they're not the big four too big to fail banks. They're like regional or specialists. And, um, and you know, that's the fear is that if, if these, um, if there's a flight of capital to the big banks out of this, this uh, understanding that they're too big to fail, they're going to be propped up by the government no matter what, is that going to, are we going to lose depositor base that can support some of the lending uh, from, from the SBA? institutions. And so I haven't seen that yet, but I, I'm a little I, worried about it. Yeah. I think the solution that's been put in place by, by the central bank and the government seems to make sense. You know, uh, Silicon Valley bank, it, it, it was not insolvent because it lacked the assets to cover the depositors money. The problem was that they had invested in things with a five-year duration. Yeah. If they were forced to sell them, then they would have lost money. And so this loan, um, you know, program that they put in where they, they're willing to make an advance against those assets. I mean, if you think about the, the banks that are mostly doing SBA loans, if you look at their asset portfolio, SBA loans are 75% guaranteed by the SBA, right? So, so it would seem that the, the assets these banks own are probably pretty solid, but to your point, I mean, if, if there's any kind of panic or, or anxiety in the network, who knows what could happen as far as, you know, just people being afraid to, to do commitments of any kind. Yeah, I, I think I think 2008 was a solvency crisis, and I think right now we're in a liquidity uh, and fear crisis where we can get whipped around by fear. Uh, but it's not really an apples to apples comparison, I don't think, uh, from from the great financial crisis days where it was just a bunch of irresponsible loans and, and subprime products that were getting crushed in the marketplace. This is more of a a perception issue. And, and just a second order effect of the rising interest rates of, of people moving assets around uh, more quickly to try to adjust to that scenario. Yeah. Uh, Quinn comments that he thought you gave a great articulation from the, from the buyer's perspective. So did I. Um, Bob wants to know what are the sort of main industries? We saw you had an electrical uh, line uh, utility company there. What, are there any kind of general rules about the types of businesses that you're dealing with? Um, we are a generalist, so we we are doing all kinds of different different industries. 
but you know very common for us is the trade so we do a lot of electrical and hvac and, and plumbing and things of that nature we also do it quite a bit um but we love white collar industries uh as well and we just see a lot more blue collar it seems like nowadays it seems like there's more of them out there to do so we're doing a lot of those um but pretty much whatever like if it's um to me it's more about uh not the industry it's about the deal size so like we're we're in that like five to 50 employee size company or that half a million to two million earnings size company where you don't know if the buyer is going to be an individual that's leveraging the SBA program, or if it's going to be another company buying it, or if it could be an institution looking for a bolt-on acquisition to a platform. Like we love that no man's land that's kind of between um, Main Street mom and pops and the lower middle market institutions. There's kind of a gray area where those worlds collide. And that's that's where we like to play um, more so than camping out in a particular industry. Um, Okay. I do have like an aviation and aerospace education and background. I'm, I'm a pilot and I'm into, I'm a nerd out about that thing, but I, I try not to build my company around that so much because it's such a, um, there's just not a lot of aerospace firms and it can be like a feast or famine industry where there's a lot of activity and then there's no activity. And I didn't want to be uh, too specialized on that, but I have done uh, quite a few aviation and aerospace deals. I like those as well. Okay. Uh, John says, hello from New York. He says there's a bit of an echo, John, that's because there's so many tall buildings in New York. The, the sound echoes between them. Um, <laughs> not sure. Technically, um, I'm a bit of an amateur when it comes to this. We've got, we've got Jordan who wants to ask, how do you help sellers understand the value of seller financing? What are some of the best examples that you have seen using seller financing to bridge gaps in deals, and and, and this is a great question. I've I've um, had to deal with this quite often too when I'm talking with sellers, showing them it may not be the the big bad risky thing that they might immediately perceive when it's presented to them. Yeah, I mean we we kind of say that you know like if if you want an all cash deal, then you need to adjust down your purchase price expectations and no one wants to do that and so we kind of from the get-go when we're valuing the company we when we're working sell side it's like we're trying to find almost like the maximum value for the company that we could still defend and get closed and get banked and get appraised and we have all these limiters on that and seller financing can help you push the value to the edge of that envelope, but you still can't mm -hmm. break out of that envelope. And so when you when you show a seller like, Hey, you're probably going to fall between here and here and you want to be here. Like you don't want to be in the middle. You want to be in here. Then the way you get here is you, you help them out with some of the seller financing that helps. And then there's also tax advantages to seller financing um, where you're taxed in the year you receive that money. And when you have, um, you know, the year you sell the business, you're typically in the highest tax bracket. And mm -hmm. um, just depending on how the deal is structured, um, you know, sometimes that can be advantageous to take some money after that year when you don't have as much income coming in and you're in a lower tax bracket. And so people like doing that as well. And then just the thought of having some, uh, you know, semi-reliable income stream into uh into retirement is appealing. 
Well, and, and, and that was one of the, the points that I would bring up with people all the time too, is simply that, you know, a lot of seller notes are going to be written at interest rates, maybe five, six, seven, I don't know, maybe even 10% now. But from a retail investor's point of view, if they got cash for the sale of their business on closing day, they can't go and invest the money and get those types of, of interest rates in any kind of bond. Like I know it's a different sort of risk profile investment, but but this is an investment in something they understand and know that they're familiar with. And they have a hand at picking who their successor is going to be as the operator. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I, I always say that uh, a seller's willingness to do seller financing is a good indication to buyers about the seller's faith in the business and them as a buyer, mm-hmm. that the the seller kind of, you know, uh, agrees this is a good candidate to take my role. And, the, and there's always like a lot more resistance to seller financing when the buyer's not on the hook yet. When, when the buyer's not found yet, because um, it's, it's like if you had somebody say, Hey, would you lend some money to a random stranger? Like that doesn't, uh, that doesn't sound very appealing, but once you meet a person and you see, wow, this person is married, they've got kids, they've got assets. They are putting a major, they're putting their life savings into this. They have good credit. They're getting underwritten by a major bank and getting approved for this thing. They are, you know, everything about them says they are responsible. They are uh, the right person for this business. I like them. I've met them. I've shaken their hand. Once you're kind of in that scenario, the the hesitancy to seller financing often goes away. Um, yeah. And, and so that's that's a big part of it is just. I, I just want to crack that door open in the beginning of the process and set ex- expectations of, Hey, to maximize your deal, you're going to have to do a little bit of seller financing. Um, and then once we meet the buyer and fall in love and, and we we're under uh, getting the deal on the table, then it typically loosens up a little bit. And where if I set expectations for 10%, sometimes we're doing 20%, you know, later in the deal and are totally comfortable with it. Yeah, when when you ask for seller financing, you're asking the seller to be a banker. And one of the traditional, you know, those traditional C's of of lending, um, one of them is character. And so the the seller's got to get a chance to get to know you as a buyer to be able mm-hmm. to make that decision about whether they think that uh, they're going to be willing to do this for you or not. Uh, I've got a. You said that ninety percent of your listings sell through. So this is a great comment here. I think. Uh, from Paul, he says, I blacklisted so many brokers after witnessing their nerve to post SIMs that have stable earnings for years one and two. And then in year three, the SDE triples and they want five times that number. Totally unethical. I don't, I don't know if I would use the term unethical or just that they have not been willing to do anything to set the expectation properly of that seller. But what would you say, Clint? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky, you make a great point, Paul. And so there's, um, there's a lot of dynamics at play here. I've been seeing that a lot too. Um, it's tricky when you're a broker and you've got a seller that comes to you wanting to sell and they do have a hockey stick in recent years. And this is pretty common. What I try to do, and this is what I'm going to encourage you to do, Paul, and for any buyers out there, is to not be formulaic about this but to look at it case by case by case. When you see a 3X of SDE in the most recent year and them hanging a, a multiple on that, if 
if you think this is an outlier year and that it's going to return to where it was or somewhere in between, it's going to average out, then yeah, it's way overpriced. But there are certain situations where uh, we're already into a partial year after that 3X and the next year is even above that. And there's really good fundamental reasons why it's growing and that we expect it to continue to grow. And the interim financials, which weren't even baked into the asking price, are already outperforming the historicals they hung the asking price on. Then I think you should be open-minded about maybe they deserve that. But sometimes the 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 spike was a one-off demand supply and demand imbalance from COVID, or it could have been you know some everything that happened in 2020 and 2021 threw off financials uh, positively and negatively. You know we had some companies that just were superstars during uh, the COVID years and some that just got slammed. And I would say, take everything case by case. I wouldn't punish a company that got hurt because of a lockdown, but has rebounded to above where they were pre-pandemic. I wouldn't just be formulaic and say, no, I just got to average the last few years. And that one year where that was down 80% because they were locked down. Sorry. You know, like you get, you get discounted for that. But at the same time, uh, if you had a spike up and we think that was a temporary, then you've got to do that. So to me, I think valuation is always um, you got to think about what am I buying? And the only thing you're buying when you buy a company is you're buying the expectations of future earnings. And so past earnings are a, uh, a sanity check on what the future might hold, but they're not predictor. They're not predictive. Um in their nature. And so, yeah, when you see that hockey stick, Paul, I just say, why, you know, like, like, and if I feel like it was a temporary blip, then I'm going to discount that heavily and lean more on the previous historical norm. But if it's being supported and continues to grow and that I got a good fundamental reason, and that's going to transfer to you as the buyer, then, then maybe I do think it's more appropriate to be all in on, the most recent year in a fast growing company that's, that seems sustainable. Yep. Okay. Um, John wants to know if he can get a link to the calculator, but I believe this is just at the bottom of every listing you have on your website. Isn't yeah, it? that was our old website. Um, and we've got a new one up that doesn't have it right now because I'm redoing it. so just hang in there. I'm going to, uh, we're mothballing this. This is the old website, texasbusinessbuyers.com. Uh, we rebranded to Bison business last year. Um, and we're going to have a bison business calculator that's going to be a lot better than this one on on the bison business listings in the future. And then we're going to I'm going to build a blank one on uh, on the website as well, where I want it to be a resource for all um, the whole community, not just for our firm. But but, yeah, I want to build one that's really user friendly and easy to play with and has some additional variables. So just hang tight for that. And there will be uh, a new one coming on bison business soon. Got lots of comments here. You know, Paul's saying that he's enjoying the live stream. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, I want you to put your economist hat on here because we have Clara who wants you to predict uh, how you see inflation affecting profitability and purchase prices as we move forward. Oh, man, what I'll say is, is like getting the game is the main thing I'll say. Like these assets aren't a uh, financial product 
their living, breathing organism, and you can control all the variables of, of these small businesses. And so what I like about being a small business owner is when inflation happens, I have pricing control, you know, of, of what do I do? And so um, I think that if anything, um, a lot of the old school business owners, when we had this inflationary ramp up the last few years, were too slow to increase their prices and they let their margins get compressed mm. and unnecessarily. And if you need your toilet fixed, for example, a plumbing company, you know, like, um, and you're used to charging $80 for that, people will pay $110 for that. And, and I think there was a, uh, a mindset from some of the baby boomers, the older generation owners, that this was just a temporary blip in inflation and we don't want to upset our customers and we don't want to have all those hard conversations. So let's just absorb it. And that's really hurt their business value. And it's really hurt their, their earnings um, and the tail end of their ownership of these companies. And so if you're doing good work with a good reputation and you're doing needed stuff that people want and need, um, we're in one of the few asset classes where you can really surf on the inflationary waves. But I, I think inflation is going to be, uh, a problem we're going to be dealing with for many years to come. So I, I don't think this was a, a blip. And so I still think even in, uh, you know, a, an interest rate environment that I think is more temporary, um, temporarily high, getting in the game and uh, being aggressive to, to fight for your margin, hold your margin is going to do better than waiting for, uh, you know, the, the clouds to part and the inflation to just be 2% again and interest rates to be whatever, 0% again. Like you're, I think you're better off getting in the game and being aggressive at controlling those variables you can control and just doing great work than you are um, waiting for that to be fixed. And so that's my only advice there is just get in the game and, and, and make things happen. Yeah, I, I did a video a couple months ago about inflation-proof businesses. And, and one of the things that I mentioned is that you want a business that has great information available so that you can see what's happening in your business and make adjustments. The business that can maneuver is yeah. the one that's going to be more able to survive. And when I see a business that, you know, to your example, hasn't been raising prices fast enough, often that can be a really great sign of a good business to buy because you're talking about a business that could afford to allow its margins to get compressed mm -hmm. and is still making money. And, and oftentimes when you see these long established profitable businesses that have been making money for a long time, they don't have a lot of debts. Uh, they may be allowing inventory to creep up. They're not, you know, under the gun for cash all the time to convert that inventory. And so from a metrics point of view, like financial analysis, stock market type stuff, the business may not look that great. But if you think about those fundamentals, you realize, hey, they must be doing a lot of things right to afford these inefficiencies and yet still be swinging and making money for their owner. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you see, um, I think one of the big errors I see from older generation owners is they get they their brains think unit price and not percentage. Um, and so my family, my mom is uh, in her 70s. And um, we own a, a nursery business that sells plants and we grow flowers. And it's been a, it's a 75 year old company. 
And on their minds, they benchmark to historical prices for a, a flat of pansies or uh, a shrub, you know, or whatever thing is. And they're like, oh, that's always been $6. So that's always been this or that. Um, instead of really knowing their cost and just really maintaining the margin they need based on that cost at the time and, and just having it be a market price um, based on the margin they need to make versus the historical, what it's always cost uh, to do this yeah. or that thing, because that served them well when inflation was low and, and you could only bump your price up once every decade or so. And it was fine, but you, you have to reevaluate, yearly if not quarterly you know a lot more often now and uh, to maintain those margins yeah uh, we got a question here from uh, sumantra wants to know how much does the buyer's experience in the specific industry affect the negotiations quite a bit it's a perception thing um sellers overemphasize i would say on industry experience because they um, they're typically very knowledgeable in the industry and the, the ideal buyer in the mind of a seller is someone that just looks like a younger version of themselves. And, and that's what they, that's what they want. I think that it's not as important. I think if you have good staff and employees that really know the industry inside and out, and the seller is going to train you, you can learn industry specific knowledge relatively quickly. And if you have experience in management and finance and these universal business skills, that's often better, a better toolkit to have than industry specific knowledge um, when you go into owning a business. But, but I have to kind of educate the seller on that, that, that we see people go into new industries all the time that have good business experience and are very successful. So I try to help do that. But as much as you can, if you're going into a new industry, take some like watch YouTube videos, read as much as you can, learn the learn the vocabulary, yeah. and try to have a little bit of like don't fake it. Like they can see through if you're trying to act like an expert and you're not an expert. But at least be conversational and relatable, and show that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and become an expert in the industry, and you've already been. Uh, kind of sowing the seeds for that, you know, and laying down some track for that, then that's going to go a long ways. And so uh, I would just say that's a good, uh, a good tip as a buyer is like start educating on the industry. And if you're specializing in an industry that you want to buy in, go to those trade shows, read, read those trade magazines and start getting knowledge because that will go a long way into a seller just feeling like they feel you and you're the right buyer for them. Cause they, they do, uh, place a high regard on that, even if it's somewhat misplaced, it's so important in their minds. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, be, to your point about learn enough about the industry to be able to be conversant in the topics that are important to industry are important, uh, not just with the seller, but also when you have that conversation with the banker, because mm -hmm. the bank is going to want to be able to have some confidence in your ability too as a buyer to that, you're going to be able to run that business and make those payments. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, actually there's, there's even more questions in here piling up and I don't think we have time to get to all of them. So Clint, would you mind coming and visiting the YouTube uh, videos at some point this week and maybe answering some of the other questions that people are putting in here? Because there's a, probably another dozen here that, that people have put in. 
Yeah, I'll I'll just come by uh, and and uh, answer some comments uh, in the video. So if y'all want to comment on the YouTube, I'll I'll happy to come by. And then um, awesome. if anybody wants to just shoot us a uh, an email or anything like that, you're welcome to do that. My email is Clint C L I N T at bisonbusiness.com. And uh, really enjoyed you having me on. Awesome. Well, it's been great to have you on. Thanks very much for stopping by. And um, and I think it was a great conversation too. And I want to thank everyone for joining live and the people who put comments out there. And uh, please, if you haven't already, hit the like button. And if you're not a subscriber, man, you got to subscribe. Uh, I'm really happy that I finally hit 30,000 subs on YouTube, which is which is great because it means that people are sharing it with, uh, with other people that they know are going to be able to take advantage of this stuff. And uh, I'm glad that, that people are enjoying it and keep coming back. And um, with that, you know, thanks, Quinn. Good to see you. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you too. Uh, bisonbusiness.com. Has Paul got it spelled there correctly? Yep. Um, and uh, with that, we're going to say see you later. And um, we'll be back shortly. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. Special thanks go to today's video sponsor, Mark Willis of Lake Growth Financial. Mark helps people better manage their personal wealth and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people I've worked with over the years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find a playlist of all the interviews I've done with Mark and to learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up to arrange a conversation about what this solution might look like for you. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.